Chapter 1 of Energy and Vibration. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Packard. Nature's Miracles, Volume 2 Energy and Vibration by Elisha Gray. Chapter 1 Energy, a Constant Quantity. To the ordinary mind, energy and force represent the same thing, and it has not been many years, comparatively, since even scientific men used the word synonymously. Modern chemistry and modern physics make a distinction and define the two words differently. Force is defined as the cause of motion, or the generator of momentum, while energy is expressed in the motion itself in its power to do work. Force refers to the causes, while energy refers to work or the capacity to do work. The distinction is one that is difficult to make plain. Strictly defined, force is any agency that can cause a motion, arrest a motion, or change the direction of a motion, while energy is motion or the capacity to become motion, and this carries with it the idea of work. Force will be more fully defined farther on. There are two kinds of energy, kinetic or moving energy, and potential or energy of position. In discussing this subject, it is our wish to get clearly into the mind of the reader, the great physical law known as the conservation of energy, how it is related to animal and vegetable existence, and especially how it may be related, if at all, to that higher order of existence that seems to be so intimately connected with the mind and soul. The phrase, conservation of energy, does not cover the whole subject that it is intended to cover. It involves the correlation of energy, or, as it has been called in earlier times, the correlation of forces, as well as the transmutation of energy, by which is meant a change from one form to another. For instance, heat as an energy may be converted into another form called electricity, and this in turn may be reconverted into heat. This process is called transmutation. The energy, as such, representing a definite amount of work, remains the same in both cases. Heat, light, magnetism, electricity are all different forms of energy working through motion. The fact that they are interchangeable is their correlation. The fact that the amount of energy remains the same through all the changes is its conservation. Energy is a constant quantity. Faraday once said to Tyndall, who was a pupil of his in the Royal Institution, when Tyndall was about to show him some experiment, Tell me first what I am to look for. I may be more ready to see it as the experiment progresses. These are not his exact words, but the substance. Writers often make the mistake of not stating clearly in the outset the point or points that they are endeavoring to prove. The reader must wade through the whole argument, which is often very wordy and obscure, to finally find the whole subject summed up on the last page. In a work of fiction, this procedure is all right. For the chief interest of such a work, aside from the philosophy that may be contained in it, lies in the fact that the climax of the story is obscured or hidden until the last moment. 
there is a sort of excitement in such a pursuit which keeps up the interest of the reader, and the interest is largely in proportion to the ability of the writer to more or less effectively obscure the outcome of the story till the last page of the book is reached. When, however, we are in search of scientific truth, the opposite is true. One wants to know, in the very beginning, what it is the writer intends to prove. The interest of the reader is then kept up in noting, as he proceeds, how nearly and how clearly the writer sets forth the facts of his argument, and proves his point as he goes along. The point that we wish to emphasize, then, is this. We are not to confine the discussion to our little planet, as it is related to energy. Our world may freeze up sometime, and the sun may lose its heat, but the energy of the universe will remain the same in some form. Like matter, physical energy is indestructible, and the sum of all forms of energy in the universe remains a constant quantity. Matter is found in many forms and combinations, producing results of almost infinite variety. There is but one energy in the physical universe, which appears in many guises, and it may be that there is but one ultimate form of matter. This latter, however, is up to the present time a speculation and unproved. Chemistry asserts that there are between 60 and 70 elemental substances in nature. By elemental substances we mean a substance which cannot be divided. Gold, for instance, cannot be changed or divided into two or more substances. But, whatever the process of analysis we may apply to it, the molecules or atom of gold remains gold, and this is true for every other so-called elemental substance. While they cannot be further separated, they can be combined with each other, and it is this combination in various relations of the atoms to each other of the sixty or seventy elemental substances in nature that form all the numerous compound substances, and their name is legion. These elemental atoms may be driven from one combination to another in thousands and thousands of ways, but no one of them is ever lost. As atoms, they may be hidden from our view when combined with the other atoms to form molecules of new substances, but the chemists, by well-known processes, can bring them out of their hidden places and force them back into their elemental homes. Here we must stop. Matter like energy is indestructible and the two are so related to each other in some mysterious bond that we cannot think of one disassociated from the other. We speak of dead matter, although in actuality all matter is associated with an ever-present force that keeps its ultimate particles in a continuous state of activity. By dead matter, we mean that which is inanimate and not incorporated into a living organism. By long study and contemplation, one may be able to get a mental picture of the difference between what we call animate and inanimate matter. But no language has ever been invented that is able to transfer a correct photograph of the mental picture existing in the brain of one man to that of another. A philosopher has often attempt to get around this difficulty by coining new words which are utterly meaningless to the ordinary mind, unless they at the same time furnish us with a glossary or set of definitions. But in these cases the definitions are often more difficult to understand than the original words. They are like the minister who, when he was teaching a Sabbath school class, told the children that they must be born again. He said to them, Children, you may not understand what this means. I will explain it. It means regeneration. In this case, 
were the little children any wiser after the new birth had been defined than before? Faraday says, The whole stock of energy or working power in the world consists of interactions, repulsions, and motions. If the attractions and repulsions are so circumstanced as to be able to produce motion, they are sources of working power, but not otherwise. Right here, let us illustrate the difference between force and energy. When the stone is lying on the surface of the earth, it is held down by the force of gravity. It possesses no energy actual or potential. That is to say, it is neither doing work nor has the power to do work unless the conditions are changed. We cannot say, however, that force has been destroyed, because it is the attraction of gravitation that holds a stone against the earth's surface. If now we elevate the stone to some position above the earth, we have given it a potential energy. That is to say, we have put it into a position where the force of gravity can cause a stone to do work if it is released and allowed to fall to the earth. That force has become a potential energy. The attraction is just as great practically after the stone has been elevated as before, but it is in the position now of a bent bow, and if released it can do work. The motion of a cannonball when fired from a gun, the motion of a falling body from an elevated position, the turning of a wheel, and the vibratory movement of the atom as sensible heat, are all instances of actual or moving energy. The bent bow held in that position, the elevated weight, static electricity, and permanent magnetism are instances of energy in position, or potential energy. It is a law of physics that action and reaction are equal. If we should take a gun barrel open at both ends and place a charge or powder in the center of the barrel and a bullet on either side of the charge, and then fire the powder, the gun would shoot in both directions with equal power. If, however, we plug up one end of the barrel rigidly and mount it in a stock in the ordinary way and load and fire it, the bullet is propelled with a certain energy that is determined by the weight of the ball and the velocity of its movement. In this case, however, the law holds good that action and reaction are equal. Every sportsman knows that when he fires a gun, there is a recoil against his shoulder. Although, in this case, the action of the ball and the reaction or recoil of the gun are equal, it makes a great difference whether one places the muzzle or the butt of the gun against his shoulder. The mechanical energy of recoil, however, is very slight as compared with that of the bullet when it leaves the muzzle of the gun. The former is mostly absorbed in overcoming the inertia of the gun, which is so much heavier than the bullet, and it passes directly into heat. If a gun could be made strong enough and still have no more weight than the bullet it fires, it would be a dangerous gun to handle, for in this case the energy of the recoil would equal that of the bullet itself, and while the bullet might kill the game, the sportsman would be in an equally dangerous position. In constructing a cannon, provision must always be made for its recoil when fired. A cannon that fires a very heavy shot must itself be heavy, for two reasons. First, in order that it may be strong enough to resist the charge of the powder, and secondly, that it may be heavy enough to absorb the reaction so that the recoil will not be too great. If we should plant a cannon in a perpendicular position, with the breech resting firmly upon the earth and fire it, the earth itself would recoil 
and the law of action and reaction would hold in this instance as truly as in the first one cited, where two balls were fired from the same gun barrel. The recoil of the earth, however, would be so infinitesimally small because of the great weight compared to that of the cannonball that it can be practically ignored. The energy of recoil is really almost entirely represented by heat. Theoretically, however, we must admit that the earth does recoil. The converse of this is true. The converse of this is true when a cannonball has reached its most elevated position. There is a moment when all of its energy of motion has been converted into that of position, except that which has been passed into heat by the friction against the atmosphere, and then the ball and earth attract each other by the force of gravitation, and they move towards each other. The weight of the ball is so infinitesimal as compared to that of the earth that the movement of the latter would be almost an immeasurable quantity. However, the law holds good both in the flight of the ball upward and in descent. If this same cannonball could be caught by some power and held in its extreme elevation, the measure of its potential energy would be the same as its energy of motion. In other words, the ability to do work, if it were released in its fall, would be as great as that which it possessed in its upward flight. If it could pierce a 16-inch armor plate a 100 feet above the muzzle of the gun, it would have the same ability to pierce that same plate, the same plate, at the same elevation in its descent. We do not mean to say that it could pierce the plate in both the ascent and descent, but that it could pierce once, and it would make no difference whether this was done in its upward or downward flight. This statement does not take into account the resistance offered by the air, but simply the push of the force of the explosion and the pull of the force of gravity. The moving energy of the ball might be totally spent in passing through the plate on its upward flight and fall immediately to the ground from that position, or it might be fired to its full height and struck the armor plate on its descent. And now the question may properly be asked. What has become of the energy that the cannonball possessed before it struck the armor plate on its upward flight? As we have seen, the velocity of the ball was totally arrested when it struck the plate at an elevation of a hundred feet, and from that point it falls back to the ground. If the plate had not been placed in the track of the cannonball, its flight upward may have been a mile, or several miles. But all this wonderful power has been spent in simply piercing the plate. Where has the energy gone? If the law of conservation is true, as we have stated, all that is visible to the eye is a hole in the armor plate, and the ball which has only been able to pass through at an elevation of a hundred feet and then fall to the ground, where it lies in inert mass. What has become of the energy? We will try to answer this question. The firing of the shot was the result of a sudden release of potential energy that was stored in the substances of which the powder was composed. An application of heat to the powder set in action a chemical process called combustion, which suddenly caused a large portion of the powder to assume the gaseous form, when it immediately tends to occupy a space many hundreds of times greater than the powder did. This sudden expansion drives the shot from the gun with an energy that is measurable, and, as we have seen in the case supposed, sufficient to pierce a heavy armor plate. This tremendous energy that a moment ago exhibited itself in the form of visible motion 
has not been destroyed, as appearances would indicate. All of it has been converted into molecular energy in the form of heat. Heat is defined as a movement of the ultimate atoms of matter, and therefore energy of motion, and in this respect is like the energy of the moving cannonball. We call heat molecular energy, and motion of a mass mechanical or visible energy, both belonging, however, to the same general class, energy of motion. One is the movement of atoms of matter within the mass, and the other is a movement of the mass itself. While the cannonball was moving, it was the embodiment of both forms of energy, molecular and mechanical. After it had been arrested by piercing the plate of metal, that which was before mechanical has been added to the molecular energy of both the cannonball and the plate, so that the molecular energy of both has been intensified. For if we now examine the cannonball and the plate, we shall find that both have been intensely heated. The ball may have been heated even to the point of redness. If the mechanical energy had been great enough, if the mechanical energy had been great enough, and the plate thick enough, the cannonball might have been heated to the melting point. The energy that was before mechanical has become molecular in the form of heat. None of it has been lost. Some of it resides in the gun barrel caused by the friction of the ball. Some of it is in the air caused by the same kind of friction. But most of it is found in the increase in temperature in the ball itself and the plate that arrested it. All of this gathered up and placed back into the energy of position would, if again released, fire the shot with the same energy as before. The mechanical energy of a shot does not represent all the energy contained by the burning of the powder. A part of it has escaped with the heated gases that rushed from the muzzle of the gun, and part is stored in the ball as heat in overcoming its inertia. This brings us to the discussion of what is called the mechanical equivalent of heat. It has been proven by experiment that the quantity of heat necessary to raise one pound of water to the temperature of one degree Fahrenheit is equal to that generated by a pound weight falling from the height of 772 feet against the surface of the earth. Conversely, the amount of heat necessary to raise a pound of water one degree Fahrenheit in temperature would, if it is all converted into mechanical energy, would be sufficient to raise a pound weight 772 feet above the earth. The unit of measurement, called the foot-pound, has been adopted as a means of determining the amount of energy expended in doing a given piece of work. A foot-pound is a unit of energy as expressed in work, and is that amount of energy that is necessary to raise one pound weight one foot high against the force of gravity. It follows from this that the amount of heat necessary to raise a pound of water one degree Fahrenheit is equal to 772 foot-pounds, which constitutes the mechanical equivalent of heat. We thus have a means of measuring energy, whether mechanical or molecular. This brings us to the point where it is well to define a little more clearly what is meant by work. Work is divided into different classes. For instance, mechanical work is performed when sensible masses are displaced, as opposed to molecular work, in which case there is a displacement of invisible molecules. When a gun is fired, 
Work is done by the energy of the ball in overcoming the resistance of the air and gravity. A certain amount of the heat generated by the ignition of the powder has been absorbed in propelling the ball forward. In other words, molecular has passed for the time being into mechanical energy. This mechanical energy begins to be transmuted or changed into molecular energy the moment the bullet leaves the muzzle of the gun in its attempt to overcome the opposing resistance of air and gravity. For the bullet becomes heated and the air becomes heated until the bullet finally comes to a state of rest. The heat that the bullet has generated in the air and in itself as well as in the earth when it is struck is the exact measure of that which was absorbed from the heat created by the burning of the powder. So that for a brief moment the energy that was freed by the ignition of the powder existed in two forms of moving energy one we call mechanical as manifested by the movement of the bullet through the air and the other molecular existing in the form of heat the sum of the two terms is equal to that which exists as molecular energy or heat after the mechanical energy of the bullet has been spent when a body is heated there is a certain amount of internal work done by increasing the rapidity and amplitude of the movement of the atoms. Work may be resistant work or motor work. When we undo work that has been already performed, it is called negative or resistant work. It is laid down as a principle that the total work performed upon a particle is equivalent to the kinetic or moving energy it gains, and the total work undone is equivalent to the kinetic energy it loses. If, in performing a certain work, it is attended by more or less friction, the same amount of work is performed in either case. When work is performed by a piece of machinery that is driven by a fixed standard of power, the amount of effective work that will be performed will depend upon the friction that it has to overcome in driving the machine itself. If the friction is great, the effective work will be lessened. The real work performed, however, will be the same whether the friction be much or little, as it requires an expenditure of energy to overcome friction, and the measure of the energy expended is found in the heat which the friction produces. End of chapter 1. Recording by Michael Packard.